You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Effects of Esoteric Development. Uh, This is Lecture 1, which is the third item in this list. There was first a prologue, a lecture given in Berlin in 1913 at the, in a sense, founding of the Anthroposophical Society. Then the opening words before this uh, cycle of lectures given in The Hague. And this Lecture 1 is entitled The Influences of Esoteric Life on the Human Sheaths given March 20th, 1913. I propose to speak to you, my dear friends, on a topic that may be important for many of you at the present time. It is important mostly for all of you who are striving in some way to make spiritual science more than a mere theory. In other words, for those who take spiritual science into their hearts and souls so that it becomes an effective part and the real substance of their lives permeating their whole existence as human beings today. What I have to say is important, not only for the actual esotericist, but for all those who wish to permeate their soul forces with anthroposophical thoughts, to learn something of the changes that the human being as a whole experiences through practicing the exercises given in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds, or, sketched more briefly, in the second part of title and outline of esoteric science. Important even to those who merely wish wholeheartedly to adopt anthroposophical concepts. Anthroposophy, when cultivated seriously, whether esoterically or exoterically, produces certain changes in the whole human organism. Through the practice and experience of anthroposophy, we may say with confidence that one becomes a different person, that is, the whole human structure is transformed. The physical body, the etheric body, the astral body, and the true capital I of the human being are changed when one genuinely and inwardly assimilates anthroposophy. In what follows, then, I propose to discuss the modifications to the human sheaths that occur under the influences of esoteric practice and the exoteric study of anthroposophy when done seriously. It is especially difficult to speak about modifications of the physical body, because although in the beginning of esoteric life such changes are important and meaningful, they are also difficult to describe accurately. Important, significant changes occur in the physical body, but they are imperceptible externally, to any outer means for acquiring knowledge. Such changes are imperceptible because the physical body is that aspect of the human being from the most inward to the most outward, least under a person's control, and also because dangers would arise immediately if esoteric exercises or anthroposophical activity were directed so that the modifications in the physical body exceeded what one was capable of mastering fully. Thus, the modifications of the physical body are kept within certain limits. It is important, nevertheless, 
that a person know something about and clearly understand these modifications. If we wish to summarize the modifications that the physical body experiences under the conditions just mentioned, we can say that the physical body initially becomes more mobile and more inwardly active. What do we mean by, quote, more mobile, close quote? In ordinary human life, the physical body's individual organs communicate with one another and are interconnected in a particular way. The effects generated by the individual organs penetrate one another. But when someone is serious in taking up esotericism or anthroposophy, one's individual organs become more autonomous or less interdependent. The life of the physical body as a whole becomes more subdued, damped down or muted, and life is reinforced for the organs individually. The reduction of the body's life as a whole, as well as the reinforcement of life in the individual organs, is extremely small. Nevertheless, through the influence of esotericism and anthroposophy, all the organs, especially the heart, brain, and spinal cord, become more autonomous, more active, and more independent of one another. They become inwardly more mobile, moving from a state of static equilibrium to a state of more variable equilibrium. It is good to be aware of this fact, because when something of this variable equilibrium is perceived, one tends to attribute it to ill health. We are not accustomed to experiencing such mobility and independence of our organs, and feel or experience our bodily organs only when they do not function normally. When we experience autonomy of our organs, which may occur in a very mild way, we may think that it is due to illness, and thus, you see, we must be careful when dealing with the physical body. Clearly, what may be in one case the onset of illness may be in another case simply an attendant phenomenon or symptom of the inner life of anthroposophy. Each case must thus be assessed individually. What one accomplishes in this way through the practice of anthroposophy is very much in accordance with the normal course of humanity's development. In earlier epochs of human evolution, individual organs were more interdependent in outer life than they are today, but in future they will become more autonomous. Just as one who follows anthroposophy must anticipate stages of development within the various spheres of life and presage knowledge that all of humanity will attain only in the future, so also one must accept that in keeping with this stage of development a person's physical organs will become independent. This modification can manifest almost imperceptibly in the individual organs and organic systems. Allow me to present a specific example. We, we are all familiar with this phenomenon. When we settle somewhere and our work provides little opportunity to travel, we become, in quotes, rooted in there. Out in the country, we find that the farmers are much more connected to their native soil and climate than the city dwellers, who often want to spend their holidays in the countryside. If transplanted to another region or climate, peasants may find it difficult to acclimate to new surroundings and may experience in the depths of their souls 
and undeniable longing for their native soil. This is merely a reminder that one must adapt the whole organism when entering a new region and new climate. Ordinarily, such ad- adaptation in fact occurs within the context of the whole organism. When we leave the plains for the mountains, or if we move to a distant country, everything is affected. For the esotericist or serious student of anthroposophy, the organism as a whole is no longer involved, but rather the blood system dissociates itself. At the same time, the circulation of the blood, which is affected to a greater degree when a person moves from one geographic area to another, separates from the rest of the organism. Those who develop a particular sensitivity to these things indeed can detect a change in the pulsation of the blood, a change in the way the pulse beats when traveling from one place to another. However, whereas the necessary adjustment makes heavy demands on the nervous system of an ordinary person, in the case of the esotericist and serious student of anthroposophy, the nervous system will be little affected. Indeed, for the esotericist, the nervous system retreats because, due to the anthroposophical inner life, the nerve and blood systems separate. The blood system becomes more sensitive to the influences of climate and soil, while the nervous system becomes more independent. If you want to find evidence of this, you must look where it may be found most easily. That is, whenever you find yourself in a similar position, when you yourself move to a new area. Pay attention, observe yourself carefully, and you will confirm this occult fact. It is extremely important to keep such an occult fact in mind, because it is gradually transformed into a very definite faculty of perception. All those who inwardly in their hearts become anthroposophists Notice the character of a foreign town through the circulation of their blood. There is no need for further investigation. We can tell by the pulsation of the blood how the various regions of the earth differ from one another. The nervous system, on the other hand, dissociates itself from the whole organism in a different way. Those who are permeated with anthroposophy, as I have indicated, increasingly notice that their awareness of the differences among the four seasons, especially between summer and winter, is very different than that of ordinary human beings today. Human beings, for the most part, ordinarily feel only the physical differences of temperature, but those who have filled their souls with anthroposophy perceive not only the differences in temperature, they also have a particular experience within the nervous system. They find it easier, for example, to cultivate thoughts related particularly to the physical brain in summer rather than in winter. Not that it is impossible to think certain thoughts in winter, but one can see quite clearly that it is easier to do so in summer than in winter, that they flow more easily in summer. We can observe that in the winter thoughts tend to become abstract, whereas in summer they are more likely to be pictorial and substantial. This is because the nervous system, the instrument intended for the physical plane, responds in delicate harmony with the change of seasons and is affected in a way that is more independent of the whole organism than is usual. 
A fundamental change occurs, however, in the physical body. We begin to be more aware of our physical body than ever before, and this may assume the most disturbing forms. The physical body becomes more responsive and sensitive to the soul's life, whereas the soul finds it more difficult to bear its relationship to the body. It is extremely difficult to explain this clearly. Imagine a glass of water in which salt has been dissolved, producing a cloudy liquid. Assume that as the human being's normal state, the etheric body, the astral body and the eye are represented as the liquid, and that the physical body is like the salt dissolved in the liquid. When the liquid is allowed to cool, the salt will slowly crystallize and become heavier, having become, in quotes, independent of the liquid. Likewise, the physical body, in quotes, crystallizes out of the whole structure of the four members of the human being. It contracts, even though this occurs only to a small degree. This must be taken quite literally. It, in quotes, shrivels in a certain sense. But you must not imagine this so dramatically that you become afraid of becoming excessively wrinkled through anthroposophical development. The shriveling is a process of densification within the body itself. As a result of this densification, the physical body demonstrates that it has now become more difficult for it to integrate with the human being's other members. On the one hand, there is an experience of the physical body as less mobile. On the other hand, the body's other members are more mobile. Before, if it was healthy, we did not experience the physical body as such, and referred to it very comfortably as, in quotes, capital I. Afterward, we experience the body as heavier than before. We experience it as something finite within, and distinct from our being as a whole. We especially begin to gain awareness of all of those organs in the physical body that lead an independent existence. Here we touch upon a question, the question of meat as food for human beings, which can be fully understood only in this context. I have no wish, of course, to aggravate a controversial issue. I only wish to present the facts. We are concerned here with the human physical body. First, however, we must describe the nature of animal food, plant food, and food in general. All this is intended as one aspect of the discussion of the influences of anthroposophical life on the human sheaths. We may describe this aspect as the restoration or regeneration of the physical body through ingesting the substances we receive from without. Our relationship as human beings to food is understood properly only when we are mindful of the relationship between the human being and the other kingdoms of nature. The plant kingdom, as one of the realms of life, brings in organic substances or mineral substances to a certain level of organization. In regard to the living plant's development, we assume that lifeless substances are transformed and raised to a certain level of organization, as though the plant were a living laboratory. In the plant we have a living organism that brings the lifeless products of nature to a certain stage of development. As human beings, we are constituted in such a way physically, that we are in a position to continue this process of development from the point where the plant left off. 
Thus the higher human organism arises when we develop further what the plant has already brought to a certain level. Things are designed with such economy that when we pluck an apple and eat it, we are aware of the perfect continuity. That is the most perfect example of continuity. If things were designed so that they followed the most natural course, we might say that the most natural course would be for us to continue the process of development from the point where the plant left off. That is, for us to take the organs of the plant as we find them externally, and from that point to develop them further within ourselves. Such a course would provide a continuous line of development, uninterrupted anywhere or in any way. This development would reach a certain stage, moving first from lifeless substance up to the plant and then to another level, as it continued from there to the human organism. Let us now take the simple example of a person who enjoys eating meat. The animal is a living being that takes the process of organization farther than the plant, to a stage beyond what is achieved by the plant organization. Thus we can say that the animal continues and furthers the process of organization achieved by the plant. Now, let's look at someone who eats animal flesh. What happens is that the human being no longer needs to use the inner forces that would be necessary to digest plant food. With plant food we must utilize certain forces to organize the food material from the point where the plant left off. These forces remain unused when we eat animal flesh, because the animal has already brought the plant's organism to a higher stage, and the human being merely needs to begin at the point already reached by the animal. Thus, in the case of animal food, we can say that the human being does not continue the work of organization from the point reached by the plant, but that forces within such a person remain unused by entering the process of organization at a later stage of development. The meat-eater allows the animal to assume a part of the work that would have been performed by a person who had eaten plant food instead. As organisms, our well-being does not depend on working as little as possible, but on activating all our forces. When we eat only plant food, we stimulate the forces that develop organic activities. But when we eat animal food, we fail to use these forces and act like someone who says, quote, I will do without my left arm. I will tie it up so that it cannot be used. Close quote. By eating animal flesh, we imprison inner forces that would otherwise be called on when eating plant food. We condemn to inactivity a certain amount of forces within the human organism. Consequently, the organizations involved, which would otherwise be active, lie fallow, become crippled and hardened. When we eat animal flesh, therefore, we kill, or at least paralyze, part of our organism. And we carry this part of the organism which is thus hardened within us throughout our lives, as if it were a foreign body. Ordinarily, a person is unaware of this foreign body. However, when the physical organism becomes more mobile, more mobile inwardly, and the organs become more independent of one another, as occurs in esoteric training, the physical body, which already feels ill at ease, begins to feel even more uneasy 
because it now has within it a foreign body. As I have said, I am not trying to create controversy, but only want to speak the truth. We shall learn about other effects of animal food, but it is enough for now to discuss this aspect in detail. Progress in anthroposophical life thus gradually produces a kind of disgust for animal food, not that it is necessary to forbid animal food to anthroposophists. Through the development of a healthy, instinctive life, one gradually comes to reject animal food as one loses the taste for it. This is much better than becoming a vegetarian because of some abstract principle. It is best, however, when anthroposophy naturally develops a kind of disgust and abhorrence of animal food. To abstain from animal food for other reasons is of little value in terms of what may be termed a human being's higher development. We can say, then, that animal food produces something that in human beings the physical body experiences as a burden. These are the facts in the matter from an occult perspective. Let us now examine this question from a different viewpoint. I would like to consider the example of alcohol. Our relationship to alcohol is also modified when we make anthroposophy an integral part of life. Alcohol is something very peculiar in the kingdom of nature, and it turns out to be not only dead weight in the human organism, but in fact acts directly as a counterforce on it. When we observe a plant, we find that it develops its organization up to a certain point. The grapevine is an exception in this regard. It develops beyond this point. Everything that other plants reserve solely for the seed, the vegetative power, that is, all of the vegetal germinating power usually reserved for the seed, which does not enter into the rest of the plant, in the grape flows into the fruit as well. Thus, through what is known as fermentation, the transformation of what in the grape itself has been activated to the maximum, something is produced in the plant that has a power that, in an occult sense, can be compared only to the power of the human eye over the blood. In the making of wine and the production of alcohol, therefore, what the human being must create when the eye affects the blood is created in another kingdom of nature. We know that there is a close relationship between the eye and the blood. This is expressed externally when the eye experiences shame and a blush suffuses the human countenance, or when the eye experiences fear or anxiety and the person turns pale. This effect of the eye on the blood, which is a normal process, is similar to the effect produced when the vegetal process becomes reversed through the process of transforming the fruit of the grape, indeed whatever arises from the very nature of a plant, into alcohol. The eye creates a process in the blood, as a matter of course, and here I am speaking from occult's insight, not from chemistry. That is very similar to the process produced in the grape by reversing the process of organization through the purely chemical action of making alcohol. Consequently, alcohol introduces into the organism something that acts just as the eye acts on the blood, but from outside. In other words, when we consume alcohol, we introduce an anti-eye into our being, 
an I that directly opposes the actions of our spiritual I. We may say that compared to how the I acts on the blood, alcohol acts on it from the opposite side. Thus an inner war is unleashed, and when we place the antagonist inherent in alcohol, in opposition to the I, we condemn to impotence everything that proceeds from the I. This is the situation from the occult viewpoint. The person who abstains from alcohol ensures the possibility that the eye can work freely on the blood. An individual who drinks alcohol behaves like someone who, wishing to demolish a wall, hammers on one side, while at the same time placing on the other side people who hammer in opposition. Consuming alcohol eliminates the eye's activity on the blood in exactly the same way. Those who make anthroposophy the cornerstone of their lives, therefore, experience the action of alcohol in the blood as a direct attack upon the eye. It is thus very natural that true spiritual development progresses only when one avoids this conflict. From this example we see how equilibrium, normally present in the physical body, experiences a transformation in the anthroposophist and how that altered equilibrium also becomes perceptible. There are many other ways that the individual organs and organic systems of the physical organization become more independent. The spinal cord and the brain especially become much more independent of each other. Tomorrow we shall speak more on the subject of nutrition and on the occult physiology of nutrition. Today, however, I want to stay with the theme of the organ's independence. The independence of the spinal cord from the brain arises because when a person's soul is permeated with anthroposophy, such a person gradually begins to have an experience in the context of the physical body as if this aspect, the spinal cord, were actually achieving greater independence. This in turn may lead to very unpleasant situations. It is all the more necessary, therefore, that we should be aware of this. It may happen that, for example, even though one normally has self-control, more advanced students may suddenly notice that they are speaking words very unintentionally. Such a person may walk along a road and suddenly notice that a word has slipped out, perhaps a favorite expression, that wouldn't have been expressed except for this dissociation of the spinal cord from the brain something that otherwise would have been restrained becomes a reflex action because of this dissociation of the spinal cord from the brain. In the brain, meanwhile, certain parts become independent of other parts. Whereas in normal life the inner and outer parts of the brain work in harmony, the inner parts of the brain, for example, now become more independent of the outer parts surrounding them. This is demonstrated when, for the esotericist or the true anthroposophist, abstract thinking becomes more difficult than it was before and gradually meets with resistance from the brain. The budding anthroposophist finds it easier to think imaginatively than to think abstractly. This is something that becomes noticeable in some especially ardent anthroposophists. They show a disposition only for anthroposophical activity, they like to read anthroposophical literature, to reflect on anthroposophical subjects, not just because they are ardent anthroposophists, but 
because they find it easier to penetrate these more spiritual ideas or views, which insofar as the physical plane is concerned, call on the central parts of the brain, whereas abstract thinking uses the outer parts. This is why some overzealous anthroposophists have an aversion to abstract thinking and abstract knowledge. And this again is why some anthroposophists note with a certain regret that although previously they could easily think in abstract terms, they now find that just such abstract thinking becomes more difficult. Individual organs thus become relatively more active and independent, and even parts within these organs become more active and independent. You can see from this that something new must arise in individuals who go through this transformation. Previously it was benevolent nature that, without our direct cooperation, brought our organs into the right harmonious relationship. Now these organs become more independent, they are related more loosely to one another, and we must have the inner strength to re-establish harmony among them. This harmony of the various organs may be attained through a sound study of anthroposophy, because anthroposophy continually emphasizes whatever increases our ability to rule over those organs that have become independent. Remember, therefore, how often people have emphasized how terribly difficult anthroposophy is, and this plays a large part in our anthroposophical literature. When I learned that my book titled Theosophy was too difficult for beginners, I often had to give people the same answer. It should not have been any easier. If it, had, if it had been easier, people would certainly accept some anthroposophical truths that have the effect of making the various parts of the brain independent. This book is therefore built on a logical structure of thought, so that the other part of the brain has to be continually active and brought into play, as it were. It is the special characteristic of movements such as ours, those with an occult foundation, not only to pay attention to what is right in the abstract sense, conveying it as one thinks best, but to communicate it in a healthy way and as truthfully as possible, to see that these matters are not given out in such a way just for the sake of making them popular that they may do harm. In anthroposophy it is not simply a question of imparting the appropriate truths in books and lectures. It is a question of how they are written and communicated. It is all the better if those who wish to be the vehicle of such a movement refuse to allow themselves to be deterred from giving out this or that for the sake of popularity. In anthroposophy, more than in any other domain, it is important to adhere to the plain, unvarnished truth. And when one touches on such questions as, quote, the transformation of the human sheaths through the practice of anthroposophy, close quote, one realizes immediately how necessary it is to present anthroposophy to the world in the right way. I would like to point out that the lectures I propose to give here must be taken as a whole, and that certain doubts that might arise in the minds of some of the audience on hearing this first lecture will be dispelled later. The end of Lecture 1